Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. Hope you're doing great. It's week five of the quarantine. Week five, seems like just yesterday I was saying it was week four, but it was seven days ago, so you made it. Keep making it. One more week, will it be week six, and then who knows what happens after that? Who knows? I don't know. You know what I found? I normally say right here, it's a great day to be alive. And don't forget that because it is. I just went for a walk this morning. We had tornadoes in the Atlanta area overnight. And yet it's a gorgeous day this morning. It was amazing. And I realized on this walk that I haven't worried about anything that isn't important in the last four weeks. I've worried. I've worried a lot. I've worried about my family. I've worried about the nation's healthcare. I've worried about the nation's economy. I've worried about the people who have been left behind by both of those things. But for the past four weeks, I haven't worried about petty stuff, about my own career, about the pace at which it's advancing or about how it compares to somebody else. I just haven't sweated that. And on some weird level, it's been refreshing to focus on things that matter. I'm dying to get out of the house. I can't wait to go see my son play baseball again. I am really looking forward to being in restaurants and telling jokes on stage to a packed house. I don't know when that's going to happen, but for now, just focused on trying to appreciate what's good in life and what I can control. As I've mentioned in the past couple of weeks, I think what crazy money has to offer right now is perspective, insight, and humor. Sorry, humor, insight, and perspective, because said that way, in that order, the acronym is HIP, H-I-P. If you say perspective, insight, and humor, the acronym is P, P. And that's nobody, nobody wants that acronym. Anyway, so today I have an interview with an expert on the London Blitz and the circumstances under which regular Londoners lived their life for the eight months from September 1940 to May 1941, during which the Luftwaffe, or the Air Force of the Third Reich, dropped bombs on London almost daily and nightly, like shelter in place with explosives. But let me tell you about Dr. Amy Bell. She is a professor of history and the department chair at Huron University College in London, Ontario the one in Canada, not London in England. Her research and teaching focuses on the social and cultural history of 20th century Britain, particularly London. She's the author of the book, London Was Ours, an examination of memoirs and diaries kept by ordinary Londoners during the London Blitz. She says she's fascinated by the histories of ordinary people caught up in extraordinary circumstances like bombing raids and violent crimes. And since all of us, globally are going through extraordinary circumstances. What better person to talk to right now? We had great conversations. She shared a lot that's in her book and also some stuff that's not. And I think very interestingly compared what was happening over there, what is that, 80 years ago to what we're going through today and what we can learn from that time. So ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Amy Bell. At the time, there was an extreme level of censorship that controlled not only the information that was published during the time, but also even what people could say in public. And there were laws that were put in place that made it an offense to utter a statement that was contrary to a wartime morale. Whereas if we get people writing in their diaries or people trying to remember things afterwards, that you can get, in some ways, a more honest appraisal about what the emotions were like at the time. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. 
Dr. Amy Bell. Welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Amy, will you tell me, first of all, where are you speaking to me from and what are your circumstances today? Well, I'm in London, Ontario. We're about two hours from the American border and two hours from Toronto. And Ontario is under a restriction where people are being asked to stay in their homes for social distancing and only to go out if absolutely necessary. So I'm a professor at Huron College, and all of our classes have been moved online. So I'm teaching online. And all the schools have been canceled, so we're homeschooling as well. You're teaching (laughs) your students online who are someplace else, and your children are being distance educated under your roof by somebody else, presumably. Well, no, by me, but I have to say I'm having a problem with the math. Grade three math is beyond me. So I really appreciate all the work the teachers do during the year. They don't carry the ones anymore. What's that all about? (laughs) Luckily, I bought a workbook that has the answers in the back. Good. And how is it teaching remotely for you? Is that a new experience? It is a new experience. We do teach remotely at our larger college, but usually using certain tools that you have to learn. And now because so many people have suddenly shifted, the platforms are not there. So we have to do teaching. We can't have classes all together at the same time. So we have to do kind of one-on-one because the, the platform won't support synchronous teaching. So it's a bit different. It's a bit disappointing for me because I really enjoy face-to-face with the students. I had a great group of students this year in all my classes. So it's a bit sad for them as well to lose the social aspect and especially for graduating students. I do feel bad for them. There's no graduation. There's no... Yeah, that is a bit of a bummer and sort of anticlimactic way to end one's college career for for sure. Absolutely. And how would you say the morale is in general? I would say in Ontario, or at least in the community that I know of, in the social media bubble that I'm in, it's very high. I think people are afraid. But I also think that we can see in Ontario, we brought in social distancing about three weeks ago. And it's been effective when we look at the rates of infection have gone down. um, We've kept the rates of death very low. And so I think people are being super cautious and I think very appreciative of the healthcare professionals and essential workers, including people that work minimum wage jobs and aren't that respected the rest of the time. So people working in supermarkets and delivery people, I think there's a lot more appreciation for them. Yeah, we're seeing that here too. That's good. Well, I wanted to speak with you because these are unprecedented times. Some would say unforeseeable. Some others would say they are foreseeable, but that's not for us to decide here today. But I wanted to talk to people who have insights into other unprecedented times in history. And I came across your book, London Was Ours, which is an analysis of memoirs and diaries from people who lived through the London Blitz. So could you tell me a little bit, what was the London Blitz and how long did it last? Well, the London Blitz was a period of German bombing raids on London, and the Blitz itself lasted about 10 or 11 months, depending how you count it. And these were raids starting in September 1940 into the spring of 1941. And originally, they were kind of daytime targeted raids, but that very quickly shifted to nighttime, longer term civilian bombing, like carpet raids. Mm. And they were quite destructive, less destructive of lives lost than was originally foreseen and more destructive of property. 
And so as a result of these raids, people had to shelter, usually overnight, in underground shelters or surface shelters, and then get up and go on with their jobs in the day. There was a lot of disruption of people losing all their possessions. They evacuated children from the hospital. There were private schemes and government schemes. So school-age children were sent away and pregnant women were sent away. They didn't compel this, but that was certainly available. So families were broken up. Of course, the men were already conscripted into the army and the women's labor was conscripted labor later as well. And then there were raids on other, so those were the raids that targeted London, and there were raids, more intensive raids on other English cities in 1941 and 1942, like Plymouth and Coventry and Southampton bombings, 1944 and 1945. And these were actually harder on morale, the V1, V2 raids. They were pilotless bombs, and there was no warning. So in the first raids in the London Blitz, the spotters could see the German planes coming over. And so they would set off the air raid signal, which was a warning siren. And so people knew to go in and shelter. But with the pilotless bombs, the V1s, V2s, there was no warning. They would just kind of come over singly or in groups. And so you wouldn't even know the bomb that hit you that would kill you. And those really destroyed morale, especially after five years of war. People were very tired. How many people were killed in the Blitz? How many people were killed? <sighs> I have it from your book at a little over 16,000. I think that would be right in London. I think it was closer to 30 or 40 over the whole country. 16,000 killed in London during a time when it had about 8 million in population, one in six homeless, just a massive upheaval of daily life to the people in the city. Yeah. If I understood you right, so at first the Nazis are bombing during the day at strategic targets and then they change strategy and say, let's turn this into uh, an assault of terror on the civilians so that they eventually want their government to sue for peace. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. So that was a strategy used by both sides. So that then presumed Hitler could break the spirit of Londoners and that turned out not to be the case. Well, no, it wasn't true in England, and it wasn't true in the firebombing of Germany or Japan either. So the whole idea that you could break civilian morale through the kinds of bombs that were available then was not true. Right. Your book analyzes the diaries and memoirs of eyewitnesses. Why are these sources an important addition to what we read from journalists and historians? Well, I think it's hard for people to remember now, but at the time there was an extreme level of censorship that controlled not only the information that was published during the time, but also even what people could say in public. And there were laws that were put in place that made it an offense to utter a statement that was contrary to a wartime morale. And so if someone in the shelter had said, we're going to lose the war or we're all going to die, they would actually be brought up in front of the magistrate and fined. And in severe cases, they could be imprisoned. And so when we look at, as well as, so there's a restriction of public information at the time, as well as a restriction on what can be published. And people, I think, internalized a lot of that censorship as well. So there's a lot of self-censorship. Letters were all censored. Every letter that gets sent, not only abroad to people fighting, but within the country gets censored. There was a huge ministry of information that was in control of all of this. So the information that gets left to us, especially in sources that are shared with other people, is not always correct if it's coming at the time, or it's heavily biased. Whereas if we get people writing in their diaries or people trying to remember things afterwards, that you can get, in some ways, a more honest appraisal about 
uh, what the emotions were like at the time. After I published that book, I wrote an article specifically on people expressing fear in their diaries and memoirs. And at the time, they were reluctant to express fear itself because that's contrary to wartime morale. So they would write about it as a set of physical symptoms, their hair is falling out, their stomach problems, they're losing weight, so they would write about that. Or they would write about it in terms of description of the landscape of London, saying, oh, it's surreal, we're bombed out, it's like the Roman ruins. And so this became a metaphor for their anxiety about what was going to happen if they lost the war. Is this going to be the end of our empire, of our civilization? And you can see people writing, authors like Graham Greene or Elizabeth Bowen, writing these novels or short stories about haunted London or spy stories or things where the characters are afraid. But even in, it's hard to remember how much information was controlled and how people themselves, because there was a very strict emotional regime in 1940s Britain, people didn't want to express fear. They Mm. felt that was, it was their duty to be positive. Do you see any parallels between how people wrote in diaries during the Blitz and how people are using social media during this quarantine? I do in that I see that there's a lot of propaganda. And not propaganda. <laughs> I don't mean in a negative way necessarily, right. but people exhorting other people to quarantine, stay safe, mm-hmm. be positive, be mm-hmm. happy. I mean, all the slogans that are coming out. And these actually really work in terms of rallying a population together or what's the hashtag alone together. Mm-hmm. So this is very similar to uh, the famous wartime slogan, you know, keep calm and carry on, even though that wasn't actually used during the war. Right. But those slogans and images become really important ways for people to rally around, especially if they aren't able to communicate with each other in normal ways through letters. Very few people would have a telephone uh, in 1940s Britain. And of course, you only had letters which were censored anyway. So it's hard to feel that sense of connection except through these public service, through films and through these public propaganda programs. Of the various sources we have to pull from today, which ones have led to accurate portrayals that we still have in mind and which ones have created more of a mythology about what it was actually like during the Blitz? I would say that journalistic ones published during the war tend to be more propagandic and you actually have to look at individual what the diarists were writing themselves. I think also a lot of what was published during the war was from American journalists living in London. Right. (laughs) Part of it was to convince America to join the war and all about the spirit of Londoners. And and it's also published to rally the home population. And actually, a lot of people kept wartime diaries just for the duration. There was a sociological research group called Mass Observation that asked people to keep diaries and donate it to them monthly during the war. And so all of those survived. So actually, within archives, there are several hundreds that have survived, a lot of which I've used for my research. They're amazing. Sounds like it. So I've told my students to keep diaries. And I'm asking my children to keep a diary as well, because these are going to be the sources that historians will look back on in future about how people dealt with the pandemic. I would hope they would just look at the silly memes that are going around and (laughs) use that as a reflection of how people went bananas while they were trying to, especially comedians who are trying to find some outlet for their performance instincts in this nutty time where audiences are no longer allowed to convene. Yes, absolutely. David Brooks, the columnist for the New York Times, wrote an article in The Atlantic this past weekend in which he attributes London's survival to four key attributes 
agency, that is that they weren't helpless. They had intense social connections. The third was laughter. Fourth was moral purpose. We must defeat Hitler. And lastly, equality. Did you have a chance to read that article? I did. I, I thought it was very well done, very convincing, and especially the point he makes about equality. And this is something that often gets forgotten about the Blitz in wartime Britain in general, is there was a very strict rationing and control. And so food was rationed, clothing was rationed, labor was conscripted, military service was conscripted. Uh, there was a lot of governmental control and bureaucracy. But partly because there was a sense that the danger and the cost of the war was being shared. This led to a fundamental change, both during the war and after the war in welfare provisions, and ended up leading to a complete social revolution after the war. I mean, Winston Churchill loses the election right. uh, in 1945, and a Labour government gets elected that creates the National Health Service that is dealing with the pandemic today. Right, So we can see that there is a, a very profound social shift because of this nature of equality. And it was called during the war, fair shares, the idea of fair shares. But you recount circumstances where, for example, and we see these today going on, that the wealthy fled London and, for example, went to Wales. You quote someone saying expensive hotels were filling up with expensive evacuees. Even those who stayed in London, they hunkered down in some of the luxury hotels in terrific circumstances relative to those people who were either sheltering at home or in the tube stations. Did equality, let me figure out how to say this, were they called out at the time for this different kind of way they were handling it? Absolutely. And I think there was also a lot of social censure as well. And that's one thing interesting to see about reporting in Britain now is, for instance, when you see Prince Charles getting a COVID-19 test immediately and then taking a private plane off to his Scottish estate. I mean, that's not something that's available to people in London today suffering with the pandemic. And so we can see the similar critique um, not being made so much publicly at the time, again, because of the censorship, but certainly socially about those people who are kind of exploiting their wealth. And I think I mentioned in the book, there were several demonstrations in luxury hotels. Mm. Some of those were written up by American journalists at the time. Uh, and some not. But it was that sense of injustice, really, that that spurred on the social change after the war. You cite several examples of how these hotels were appointed. Some had cots around Turkish baths in the basement. They had attendees, and they even had special compartment for snorers, which uh, my <laughs> wife would certainly appreciate me being isolated in one of those. Yeah. Well, yeah, they sound lovely. They actually do. And that was one of yeah. the things. So how did people deal with this because part of the disruption is just the fact that there's noise every single night and this is in a world before noise canceling headphones how did people get sleep get rest stay healthy during this period well it's interesting i was thinking about that today and i was thinking you know considering the unhealthy lives people had i mean they didn't have a lot of access to fresh vegetables or fruit they were sheltering in very damp shelters, often in uncomfortable positions, that actually the health of the nation stayed pretty good, the physical health. There weren't any large-scale outbreaks of TB or viruses or infectious diseases. People were pretty tough back then. And so you can see that people did lose weight, like there were physical symptoms, but they mostly just got on with it. And I think it's also what David Brooks said about having a sense of agency. Everybody had a job to do. Everybody had something to do. And so if you're focusing on that and not so much about the anxiety or not sleeping, 
it can be a good distraction and keep you going forward. What did the average Londoner have to do with the ongoing efforts during the Blitz? Were they just trying to live their lives or were they called into special service? They were called into special service. So there was a lot of evacuation from the capital of people who worked for the BBC, for example, were evacuated. A government stayed in London. They had special purpose-built war rooms created in Whitehall underground where the government continued to meet. And the royal family, interestingly, did not evacuate either. So manufacturing and shipping still went on in London as well as so people would do their regular job, publishing, uh, some of that evacuated, some of it didn't. Journalism stayed in London. So people would have their everyday job and then they would often be conscripted or volunteer into doing things in the evening, such as fire watching. They would have to see if there was an incendiary bomb that was dropped on a building to notify the wardens and put it out. Air raid wardens, they would take control of a neighborhood during a raid and make sure everyone gets to a shelter as well as coordinate rescue. There were lots of people who volunteered for the fire service, ambulance services, medical services. You'd have your ordinary job as well as your civil defense job as well. Did stores and restaurants stay open? Stores tried to. Herod's never closed uh, and the larger department stores tried to if they could. Restaurants could except eventually um, towards the end of the war they were running out of supplies. And beer and spirits almost ran out by the end of the war as well. So pubs were open. They didn't really shut business in that sense, but they might have to close because there weren't the supplies. <laughs> so hairdressing salons closed, for example. They didn't want to hook people up to the permanent wave machines because if an air raid comes while you're having your perm, it's all going to be ruined. <laughs> God forbid. God yeah. forbid we run out of booze or ruin a good perm. So the iconic image of London during the Blitz is people huddled in the tube stations, but that was a really a small percentage of the population that took shelter there. Where did everybody else go? Well, it's interesting because the government at first refused to open the tube stations during raids. They didn't want people to go down there and they didn't want working class people to go down there because the fear was that they wouldn't come out, that they'd be so afraid they'd become these kind of subterranean trolls that would, wouldn't come out and do their jobs. And so it took a couple of weeks for protesters essentially to force the government to keep the tube stations open. So uh, there were in certain neighborhoods, if there was an available tube station, people would go down there. Other people had neighborhood surface shelters, so which would be usually built out of brick, or they would shelter in the basement of their offices and schools or basements of churches. Uh, they also, uh, the government distributed shelters to use at home. So the iconic Anderson shelter was made of corrugated iron and you would kind of bury it in your backyard and it could withstand anything but a direct hit. Mm. Some of them I think are still around. Uh, they get converted into sheds after the war. And then there were even towards 1943, I think they started maybe earlier, they were called a Morrison shelter. And it was essentially a big table that had enclosed wire around it. And you go in under the table during a raid in your dining room. So you would take shelter in your space. So if you didn't have a backyard, you didn't have access to a surface shelter or a deep shelter, you'd go there. And by 1943, the government had created deep tube shelters, these specially built, extra deep, purpose-built shelters that had bathrooms and kind of sanitary facilities and bunk beds, but they were never used. And now they're used for storage. I think there's a club in one of them and also some uh, hydroponic farming 
goes on in the deep tube shelters now. Cool. How do people entertain themselves during the Blitz? Reading, knitting, writing these diaries, talking, singing. There was a lot of sociability, as David Brooks points out, because there was so much group shelters. And that could go well, and that could go poorly, depending on who you're sheltering. There was a lot of family tension, as you can imagine. (laughs) Like Thanksgiving dinner for nine months. Well, exactly. While you're under the table all night with your parents, like there's some really funny bits in diaries about that. Like, you know, dad stuck his elbow in my face again. And how, why does he snore so badly? Imagine Uh, being locked up with your in-laws for 11 months. And uh, yes, I would not enjoy that. (laughs) Uh, But then now I think people are suffering from social isolation that everyone is sheltering in place and people are missing their, their families in a way. And also families are more disparate now. You're not living with your parents and you're not living in these larger groups. And so you can see the social effect or the effects now will be more of isolation and less of this sense of togetherness. Did the social barriers that fell during the Blitz stay down after the war or did they go right back up to where they were previously? I'm not sure that social barriers actually fell in any meaningful way. I think that middle-class planners and bureaucrats and government functionaries gained a new respect for working-class people. The fact that they did keep working and didn't stay in the tube shelters and weren't actually afraid that they maintained morale. And I think also working-class people gained a new sense of how they should be treated in government and that there should be more distribution of government resources. But in terms of social barriers in a cultural sense, I'm not sure that those fell or I think those really still persist in the present. Mm. I mean, there was a perception that it did, like we're all in this together. Buckingham Palace gets like a little piece of the masonry chipped off and (laughs) all this propaganda about how, oh, the royal family are in this too. But you know. Well, that's what I'm asking. Is that, was that really real? Was it actual? I mean, it's one thing for people to smile and wave to someone on the street that they see to whom they would maybe not have done so previously, but did they actually create bonds and get through it together? And, you know, did it result in some sort of TV program? Hey, we're all the same kind of conclusion that really did change permanently. And I'm not getting the sense from you that that actually happened. No. And I don't think there was ever a sense that we are the same. There was a sense, I think, that maybe we're in this together and that there has to be a creation of a new kind of society afterwards, but not in the sense that these barriers would be crossed in any way. So, for instance, middle class people might do a working class job for the duration, but there was also a sense that that was just for the duration. And then after the war, things are going to go back to how they were. And you can see that in women's labor as well. Women were welcomed into the factories and as bus drivers and conductors during the war with the expectation that once the men came back in 1945, they would not be welcome in those jobs anymore. And they weren't. Mm. And probably within the ranks of the military as well, where they might've all served together, but once they go back, everybody went to Cambridge and Oxford was back in executive roles and leadership roles and everybody else was in the factory or wherever. Absolutely. So you could progress up the ranks during the war, but that wasn't the sense that, that that would carry over into your, your social place after the war. Because class, of course, it's not just economic, it's cultural and educational as well. And it's very strong then as now in Britain. You cited some doctors who prescribed what was necessary to survive and maintain morale during the war. The physical needs were food, warmth, work, leisure, rest and sleep, a secure base and security of dependence. 
the mental ones were belief that victory was possible, sacrifices were being shared equally, and that leadership was effective. Yes. Sounds kind of similar to what we would need to get through the crisis we're in today. How do you feel about that? I think that's absolutely true. I think there was an advantage, though, in the Second World War in that psychologically there is a known enemy. Right. So that people could take a lot of their negative emotion and anxiety and project it onto these other people who are doing this to us. Mm. And there's something comforting about that, knowing like if we can beat them and then all of this will end. I think in our current situation, there is no known enemy, right? It's, it's a biological incident that isn't clearly understood and against which there really is no defense at the present moment. Defense will be possible, but there's not that security of knowing what an outcome, a successful outcome would be. I'm protesting by no longer taking any probiotics. I am (laughs) from here on out only antibiotics because it's obviously us against the germs, Amy. Exactly. Get them. (laughs) So can you trace an aggregate emotional arc over the months of the Blitz? Were there times where it looked like London would give up? And then was there a time where it became clear that they would survive? I think in the Blitz, there was a lot of fear at first because people didn't really understand kind of the shift in bombing tactics. And once they understood that this was going to be a duration and they got all of their kind of shelter plans in place, as long as they weren't bombed out themselves or they maintained some kind of level of social security, I don't think there was a real dip in morale in London during the Blitz. It was in the second wave of bombing raids in 1944, 1945, then you see a real problem with morale. And in terms of the other cities, and people talk less about the other cities, like Coventry, for example, was almost, the center was almost completely destroyed. And Southampton, similarly. So these quite industrial centers got almost completely destroyed. And there was a lot of concern about morale there and a lot more social dislocation, partly because it was such a short, sharp shock, whereas London, it was more spread out and it lasted Uh, quite a bit longer. Before I ask a few questions that are going to kind of bring us around the bend and wrap it up, was there anything else you wanted to talk about or any other points you think would be good to make right now? Well, I think if we look at how Londoners survived the Blitz and really led to a new social contract, I think you also have within British culture at that time, a real sense of duty that people Mm. felt that they had a duty to stand by the government, to do their jobs, to not be afraid or at least if they were afraid to not express it, and a duty to not just the social collective and to the nation, but to themselves. It was part of their national character. And I think that's something that that we should think about as well. I mean, that we have a duty to serve and protect others in this situation that surpasses maybe the individual head of government and that surpasses whatever political situation that we're in and that we should think about not only what's happening in terms of ourselves, but what we owe others in this situation. With that in mind and that duty in mind, do you think that living through the Blitz made people more grateful? Oh, absolutely. And I think in some ways it made them, it was a, for those who survived and didn't suffer catastrophic loss, it gave them a story for life. And some people you can see when you read their diaries, like this was the happiest time of their lives especially for women, they had a purpose, it's something to do, there was camaraderie, there was excitement, there was a sense of actually doing something, you're, you're literally putting out fires and saving people's lives. And a lot of that gets dissipated after the war, right? That there isn't that kind of social connection anymore. 
I think also David Brooks makes the point about sex during the Blitz. Quentin Chris was a famous gay memoirist wrote London was like a paved double bed. Like people were at it <laughs> everywhere. So I think there was a sense that, Hey, why not? And the uh, libertinism and excitement kind of in the bedroom and in parties and in shelters that a real sense of excitement that some people felt a real rush by these events. I wonder if that's happening somewhere in a parallel universe that I don't know about right now. If there is, I haven't heard about it on Twitter. <laughs> that's right. If it's happening, it's happening virtually. <laughs> this is more a period for self-love. Why do you think that sense of purpose that becomes so crystallized during crisis, why do you think that's missing on a day-to-day basis for most of us? I think it's because we're there's a big gap between those who are being asked to risk everything. So people on the front lines, medical personnel, people in the armed forces, and the rest of us that are just being asked to sit by and do nothing. Mm. And so there are campaigns where people are being asked to donate money or to sew masks. or But there's a sense, I think, of helplessness and restlessness among the people who are just being asked to shelter in place and not go out. And I don't, I don't see any way around that, but it's, it's hard to create this cohesive sense other than this gratitude for people who are being asked to risk their lives uh, to serve others, that there's a, uh, it's hard to connect those two very different experiences. What do you think a Londoner, a survivor of the Blitz would tell us and how we should be dealing with this right now? I think they'd think that we have it soft. I mean, <laughs> we have, there's so much food, there's so much entertainment. I mean, they would dream of the internet. Of course. Um, but I think also the the advantage that a 1940s Londoner would have is that it wasn't a materialistic society in the way that it is today. Yeah. People really engaged with other people. They kind of made their own fun. There wasn't a sense that there was this fear of missing out that we're experiencing now. David Brooks says the people of America are less psychologically and socially healthy than the British under the blitz. This means we have a lot of work to do to create a sense of agency, compose a redemptive national narrative cultivate a moral purpose. Do you think we'll be different after this coronavirus epidemic? Well, that's the million dollar question, right? And when you look at crises in America, I mean, not being an American, I'm just commenting as an outsider. Crises in America that people believed would transform gun culture, for example, Mm. or kind of other key aspects of American identity, and they have not to this point. So it's really interesting as a neighbor to see how like to kind of predict how this might uh, affect American politics. I mean, I hope it's transformative. I hope in particular that public health and the structures of public health in America get transformed, but in terms of a creation of a new kind of national identity, I don't know. How do you think you'll be different? How do you think Canada will be different afterwards? I hope that we're going to be a society that is more caring. I mean, we already have a very strong public health system and a very strong healthcare system, Mm -hmm. but I hope it's going to transform how we treat people who work in jobs that were not deemed essential. And that includes, you know, checkout cashiers, people who work in fast food restaurants, all those people that are still working now that don't get to just stay home and watch Netflix. And I hope that there is more 
that a lot of the grocery store clerks have had their wages temporarily raised. So the very same companies that refused to raise the minimum wage or complained about it a few years ago have now given everyone a 20% raise who's still working. But I hope that actually continues past the crisis and then we continue to appreciate people like truck drivers and like nurses who have worked to for the rest of us during this time. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how quickly things go back to the way they were and which of those things is actually going to make it through a world where we need and are reminded of the gratitude we should have every day. So, Well, and one of the things that happened in Britain is there was a commitment to employment insurance, to benefits, and to that the state would guarantee full employment. So that's the kind of social security. And it wasn't just the health service. It was basically security from cradle to grave and old age pensions were expanded as well. So since that every member of the community mattered and that the government was going to reward the sacrifices that people had made, not only in material goods and sacrifices of individual lives, but the sacrifice of the years of work that they did with very little control over what they did uh, for such a long period. I mean, six years is a long time. And hopefully the pandemic situation will not last that long. Yes, indeed. Well, my thought is that it needs to last as long as it's going to last and let's knock it out the first time and not try to get back to things too quickly. Yes, absolutely. Amy, I really enjoyed reading your book. I learned a lot. You have other writings. Where can people find out more about you? Well, I have a website. I haven't updated it for a while, though now I'll have the time to do that. Now you have thousands of people coming to your site. Yes. My more recent work became really interested in how crimes were investigated during the Blitz, because there were some famous cases of husbands killing their wives and trying to pretend that they had been bomb victims. Oh, my God. So my research after this actually traces kind of the history of forensics in Britain before the war, during the war, and after the war, and not only what kinds of murders were committed, but how the police set out to investigate them. In a London in the 1930s, in which people knew each other in neighborhoods, to a London after the war, where there's a lot more fluidity and strangers and movement and mobility through the neighborhoods. And of course, technological changes in forensics, and my particular research is crime scene photography. Cool. My more recent research is on psychics and spiritualism and the occult in Britain. And I just want to tell you a story about a kind of mystic called Dion Fortune that during the Second World War organized essentially these magic occult circles where they would chant kind of protective spells uh, to protect Britain against the evil German invaders. And maybe it worked. Well, correlation does not imply causality. Just as a as, as a researcher, we have to have that caveat there. But it does sound very interesting. And the website is amyhelenbell.com. Yes. Cool. Well, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. And I want to say thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, great. It was a real pleasure, Paul. It was nice to have a human connection today. Likewise. And best of luck to you and your family for the next, well, forever, but especially for the next few months. And to you as well. Thanks very much. Thank you again, Amy, for taking the time to share your expertise with us. I know you've got even more than usual going on right now. So an extra dose of thanks to you from us for being a part of the show today. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, if you like what we're doing here at Crazy Money, do me a favor, share it with three friends, three of your smartest, most insightful, most intellectually curious and funniest friends. I don't know why funny, just maybe they have a sense of humor and would appreciate the weird combination of humor, insight and perspective. Or should it be insight, perspective, and humor? If, 
if, ooh, that's an interesting acronym. That's not as good as HIP. HIP is way better. Hey, that was a notification bell. Maybe before I start recording the intros and outros, I should close all the tabs in my browser. It's been a long morning. I'm getting punchy. I hope you stay healthy. I hope you stay sane and continue to be good to yourself and to one another. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.